0: Hey, thanks for checking out this sermon. Our team worked hard to put this sermon together with you in mind, and we hope it helps you take your next step with Jesus. Enjoy. This Christmas we're having a conversation about the significance and meaning of that light that we celebrate all Christmas long, the birth of Jesus, the light that shines in the darkness. And we're having this conversation by walking through one chapter of the Bible, actually just half of the chapter, written by one of Jesus' favorite disciples, the Apostle John. So whether you're in the room, you're in the courtyard, the family venue— or you're watching online, or you're on one of our other campuses, or uh, you're one of our brothers and sisters in the incarcerated church, go ahead and open your Bibles up to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 6. Last week we went through verses 1 through 5. Uh, If you're new to opening a Bible, John comes after Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and before Acts and Romans. So get there in your Bible or Bible app. John chapter 1, starting in verse 6. Here's what we read. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. It's a different John than wrote the book John, but his name is John the Baptist, or we've come to know him as such. And he came as a witness to testify concerning that light, that light which is Jesus Christ, which we learned about last week, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. Father God, I'm uh, so grateful to be here today. It's such an awesome gift to just gather together and to celebrate you and praise you and worship you as we remember all month that you became like us, that you came into the world, and when you came into the world, that was light shining in the darkness. So God, I ask that today you open our hearts, minds, and souls to new possibilities and um, maybe even new direction for our lives, or maybe a little prompting in one way or the other, God, that you would, you would lead us today, that your Holy Spirit would just be in this place and work among us. We love you. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Amen. Well, yeah, I don't know how many of you guys have uh, family traditions in, in December. I think most of us do, but I, I remember growing up, my family had a lot. Of, of family traditions, and there was one in particular that, that I loved, and I think I kind of inspired this tradition. Every year, as a family, we would gather in front of the television, and we would watch my favorite Christmas movie ever, The Christmas Story. Now, I don't, I don't want any arguments from anyone. This is the best Christmas movie that's ever been created in the history of mankind. Uh, it's, thank you for agreeing with me. <clears throat> I guess the people who aren't clapping are disagreeing with me, so, uh, but, but here, here's the deal. The movie, this is a movie set in the 1940s, and the main character, uh, played by Peter Billingsley, his name was Ralphie, which, by the way, I was so infatuated with this movie that I got a signed picture of Peter Billingsley, and I couldn't find it. I was gonna bring it, but, but I couldn't find it, so that was a bummer, but, uh, Ralphie was trying to convince throughout the course of the movie, was trying to convince everyone, his friends, his, his family members, his parents, his, his, his teacher, even, even Santa, that the perfect Christmas gift for him would be a Red Ryder BB gun. But what did each individual tell, poor rap, t- tell Ralphie what would, ha- what would happen if he got the gun? What did they say to him? Say it with me. You'll shoot your eye out. Cool. I like the kid part. That's like the Santa as he was like kicking him down the side. Uh, <laughs> coincidentally enough, uh, they were right. Once he got the gun, Ralphie did almost shoot his eye out. Well, as an impressionable young boy, as someone who loved this movie, I watched this movie and I told my parents and everyone that I could possibly convince, people I didn't, I didn't know, people that, that were in my life, that this would also be the perfect Christmas gift For me, that I wanted a Red Ryder BB gun. So you can imagine the sheer ecstasy I felt when on Christmas of 1989, when I was five years old, I saw a present that looked just like it might be it. And I started to unwrap it. And I pulled out the box that contained the Red Ryder BB gun, this beautiful thing that was contained inside the wrapping paper. And in that moment, my life was complete. Now I was going to bring it to show you today but uh, my wife said don't don't do that. And so 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 uh I didn't I I actually did last night and she's like are you are you serious? <laughs> and so I I listened to my wife cuz she's a lot smarter than I am but I got this this gift. instead I'll show you a picture. Um this is me shooting uh the gun with my son. Uh, he's he's not wearing a shirt but he is wearing a cape in case you were wondering. That's what he thought was the appropriate way to learn how to shoot a BB gun. And so we've we've Messed around with that. I shot it yesterday just to see if it still worked, and it went like this. Like, like <laughs> the BB went like 10 feet in front of me, and, and that was the thing. But when, when I first got this, I became quite the marksman with this thing. Like, there wasn't a beer bottle or a Coke can that stood a chance against my BB gun precision. Uh, if my parents would have let me, I would have taken that gun everywhere with me, and I bragged to anyone who would listen about this gun. I was so infatuated with. So much so that I tried to even convince other people, other parents uh, of my friends, to buy the gun for their kids so that we could play with them together. Which, which I guess wasn't a good idea because no one else bought their kid that. But, but I talked about this thing all the time. Like every person I interacted with. And I became a witness for this gun just testifying to its value and worth and beauty. And as you can tell... I have yet to shoot my eye out, so I've, I've got a leg up on Ralphie. For as often as I talked about this gun and for as much as I uh, told people about it, uh, I think people started to think I was a little bit weird. Like, like it was nonstop. And they're like, you're kind of, you're kind of different, kid. And, and I was like, yeah, maybe so. But, but, <laughs> but like I said, I became a witness for this thing. And in the, verse, in the three verses we're studying today, that word witness shows up two times. And witness is the word that John used to describe another man named John. Here's what we read in John 1.6. Going back to what we read earlier, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This John is different than this John. This is the Apostle John. This is who we've come to know as John the Baptist. And we know him as that because he later on in life baptized Jesus. Now, in the same way that people thought I was weird and different for the way that I talked about my Red Rider BB gun, and, on, and while I was on my quest to make it known, people thought John the Baptizer was a pretty weird guy, too. He was different. And I think a deeper look into the life of John the Baptist and why he came may push us and challenge us and invite us to maybe be a little bit different this Christmas. But in order to do so, I think we need to get the full picture of who John the Baptist is starting at the beginning. Right before Jesus was born, his mom, and when she found out she was pregnant, Mary went to visit uh, Elizabeth, who was the mom of John the Baptist. And she was pregnant with John the Baptist at the time. And we read of their interaction In the beginning of Luke, if you're at John 1 right now, flip over to Luke chapter 1. It's one book back. Luke chapter 1, and look at verse 39 with me. Here's what we read about John the Baptist. This is the first time we hear of him. And this is is what the gospel author Luke writes. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And then she said this, As soon, she said, Elizabeth said this to Mary, As soon, As the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. You catch that? In the womb, baby John was leaping for joy. As a developing baby, John knew there was something special about his cousin, that the baby Mary was carrying, Jesus, was not just any baby. Like, I can just imagine a little voice crying out from inside Elizabeth's stomach proclaiming, It's you. You're the one. And throughout the rest of John's life, we see him proclaiming this very same thing as a witness testifying to the light that is Jesus Christ that all might believe. Thirty years later, we find John the Baptist preaching in the desert of Judea saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. We read this in Matthew's account, which is two Gospels further. We're going to go through a few different uh, of the Gospels today. Matthew chapter 3, flip over there with me real quick if you've got your Bible open or Bible app open. Matthew chapter 3, we read about John the Baptist when he's a little more grown up. In chapter 3, Matthew writes, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, and this is prophecy from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, and it's, and it's talking specifically about John the baptizer. And here's what Isaiah wrote then that Matthew quotes now. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. This prophecy that's found in in the Hebrew Scriptures is fulfilled now through this unique man, John the Baptizer. And he was a strange guy. Like if you just read the next verse, Matthew writes, John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Now, in case you were wondering, camel hair clothes have never been in style, even in 30 A.D., Um, And as much as that that wasn't the height of fashion, even back in Jesus' day, and as much as locusts and honey sound like one of those three-day cleanses you do to lose the 11 pounds you gain during the holidays, this isn't a typical diet for anyone. So everyone thought that John the Baptist was different. As we continue to read Matthew chapter 3, we see that John was, was not a fan of established religion. He called the Jewish religious leaders, a brood of vipers, which was not a term of endearment. And and he had no formal education, and he resided in his address was the wilderness. When people read the prophecy of the one who would proclaim the coming of Christ, when they read that in Isaiah 40 and they read it in other places, and, and they they read that this is the guy that's gonna serve as the witness to the light of Christ, John the Baptist was not at all what they expected. He was different, which I think we all in some way, shape, or form hope that we would be a little bit different, that we would not necessarily fall in line with societal or cultural norms, that we would be unique and stand out. Apple capitalized on this thought in an ad campaign in 1997 called Think Different, And the commercial that they played with this ad campaign showed video footage of of people like like Einstein or Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Pablo Picasso, Amelia Earhart, and and many others. And and while the footage of these people played and some of the things that they were doing, there was a voiceover, and I think it was Richard Dreyfuss that was narrating. The voiceover said this, Here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs in square holes the ones who see things differently they're not fond of rules and they have no respect for the status quo you can quote them disagree with them glorify or vilify them about the only thing you can't do is ignore them because they change things they push the human race forward and while some of them may may while some may see them as as the crazy ones we see genius Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. So I think what Apple was trying to communicate back then, back in 1997, is that different can be a good thing. And I think we all recognize this in in, in some way. And and even as I was studying this week and I stumbled across this this commercial, I started to get a little bit fired up and excited about who I am and, and how I've been created to be uniquely me. But it also caused me to wonder and think about okay, so I've entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Like that, that, that's something that's different about me than everyone else. But I wonder what's the difference that Jesus has made in my life, and is that difference noticeable? And for those of us who consider ourselves Christians, we've heard and understand that following Jesus makes us different and unique and maybe outsiders think we're a little bit crazy. But like the Apple ad stated, has it changed anything? Has it changed us? Has it changed who we are and and how we operate? Has the world around us changed because of our allegiance to Christ? So, maybe an even better question for us to ask ourselves and process and think through today and even this month, in light of John the Baptist and, and, and how unique he was, is this question How can I be different in order to make a difference? And as we t- turn back to, to chapter one, we see John the Baptist being described a couple different words or a couple a couple different times by a word that I've been alluding to since my BB gun story. And this one word, more than his clothes and diet, was what made John different. And it made a huge difference. Remember what we read in John 1, verse 7. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light. That light is Jesus Christ. So that through him, all might believe. You see, the message Jesus brought made John different. And as a result, he couldn't help but point to Jesus. He became a witness. Now, even as I say that, I understand that that word witness is a loaded word in our culture today. But let's just break it down to its bare bones. Because here's what this means in John chapter 1, verse 7, that John the Baptist's reason for being is to not hold back the testimony, the evidence that he has establishing the messiahship and divinity of Jesus Christ that God became human and that John could and would point to the actual personal manifestation of this and the way in which he went about it even the fact that he did this this is what made him stand out the apostle John explained this about John the Baptist but he also thought that it needed to be true for more than just the, the camel hair wearing, locust and honey eating prophet in the wilderness. Here's what he wrote later in 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 to 14. He said, This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. This word that John uses in 1 John chapter 4 is the same Greek word that he used way back in John chapter 1. It is the Greek word martyreo and it means to witness and to testify. See this is what John's saying here is this is this is what we do. We witness to the light If you follow Jesus, we testify that God sent his son to be the savior of the world, and he has given us his Holy Spirit so that everything we do and everything that we say and the way that we live, we point to Jesus Christ. And this is what is noticeably different about us. And even as I say those words all the moments and all the times where I fall short of that definition of a follower of Jesus Christ start flooding my mind. So, so while most of us agree and believe that what I just said is true, is this who we are? For those of us who follow Jesus, I mean, a lot of times we want to ask the question, are we like Jesus? Which is obviously what we're shooting toward. But let's, let's maybe take it back a step. Are we even like John the Baptist? Are we John the Baptist type witnesses? Are we different? How has the gospel changed us? How is the Holy Spirit that we've been given working through us to testify to the light of the world? Or, or is this something that we're suppressing? Is this something that we're stifling a little bit? Is there something keeping you or keeping me? from being a witness. Now, a while back, I was, I was listening to, to best-selling author Malcolm Gladwell's podcast called Revisionist History. And in season one, episode three, Gladwell takes an in-depth look at basketball player Wilt Chamberlain and his free throw shooting or inability to shoot free throws, rather. He was terrible at shooting free throws. And, and free throws are the shot that you take 15 feet from, from, the, from the hoop with no one guarding you after you get fouled. And, and I, I was born in, in Indiana, and when you're born in Indiana, you learn to play basketball, basketball at about the age of two, I think. And, and so I, I learned how to, how to play, play basketball pretty early on, but I also earn, learned very early on that free throws are shots that are not to be missed under any circumstance, like I still remember my dad scolding me when I when I was playing basketball, and any time that I missed a free throw, he would yell out, "Hey, Steve! They call them free for a reason." <laughs> and, and I'd say, "Dad, well, there, there's professional athletes that get paid millions of dollars to play this sport, and they can't figure out how to how to shoot free throws and make free throws consistently. So why don't you get off my back a little bit?" Um, my dad and I are working through some of my childhood issues right now, so, so thanks for processing with me, but uh, no, I'm kidding. Um, Wilt Chamberlain was one of those athletes who got paid millions of dollars to play the game of basketball. I don't know if he got paid millions of dollars back then, but he got paid a lot of money. And he was one of the worst free throw shooters of his time. He was also one of the best basketball players of his time, so he got fouled a lot, he played a lot, he was on the free throw line a lot, but he could not figure out how to shoot free throws. He was about a career 51% free throw shooter, except for one year that served as an outlier for Chamberlain, where he decided to shoot the underhand free throw, otherwise known as the granny style. And this is a shot that was made famous by Rick Berry, Hall of Fame basketball player, former warrior, for all you Dubs fans out there, and... I was expecting a little more applause. It's a tough year. I get it. Yeah. No, no, no. You don't, can't now. Too late. You were you were applauding the last three years. Now it's, yep. Enjoy this year. Uh, but Rick Barry was a great free throw shooter, even though he shot granny style. Even though he shot granny style. He was about a 90% career free throw shooter. Now, what's fascinating is that the one year that Wilt Chamberlain decided to shoot like this, his free throw percentage grew dramatically. Now, what does all this have to do with our conversation about John the Baptist? Glad you asked. Well, you'd think that after such success that Chamberlain would shoot this way for the rest of his career. But after one successful year, he abandoned this type of free throw and went back to his old way and his percentages plummeted again. Chamberlain later admitted that shooting underhand drew jeers from hecklers, which made him feel weird and different and silly and embarrassed, so he stopped. He went back to his old, less successful way of doing things because of the opinions of outsiders. Gladwell stated that the difference between Chamberlain and Barry leads us into a conversation of high-threshold and low-threshold personalities. To try and explain this in a simple manner, a high threshold personality is someone like Chamberlain who will allow opinions and thoughts of outsiders or allow a crowd to change their behavior, while a low threshold personality like Barry stays the course regardless of social cost. Essentially, what he's getting at is that low threshold personalities do not let the thoughts or opinions of others to change their behavior. And I think, in light of our conversation today, that one of our biggest deterrents to being a John the Baptist-type witness is exactly what caused Chamberlain to change, and that is social cost. See, Wilt Chamberlain believed that he would shoot better if he shot underhand. He knew it. He experienced it. He lived it. But social cost prevailed over that belief and it changed his behavior. So let's take this back to our conversation today. When it comes to the way in which we witness or how we witness or if we witness as followers of Jesus Christ, does our belief coincide with our behavior? Does our behavior coincide with our belief? is truly allowing the Holy Spirit to witness through you? Is that your granny shot? How concerned are you about what your family members think about you? Are you held hostage by the opinion of your coworkers or opinion of your friends? What's different about you? Because because here's the deal. You can't follow Jesus and stay the same. You can't do it. The guy that John the Baptist points to, the guy that he was talking about when he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. It takes a turn when you follow Jesus. Something shifts in us when we give our lives to Christ. Because when you truly give your life to Jesus, then your life points to Jesus. This changes you. The Holy Spirit moves in you and through you. Light beams on you and from you when you encounter Jesus. And we aren't just trying to send out little rays of sunshine. We aren't trying to hide the light that we've been given. We're trying to shine. Now, don't get me wrong, when I talk about this, I'm not saying that we need to be out on street corners yelling at people, telling them that they need to give their lives to Jesus, and literally trying to scare the hell out of them. that's, That's probably the wrong kind of weird, and it is weird. But I love how we've talked about this in the past. That our best approach, our best witness, our best way to point to Jesus Christ is to ask in every single situation, what does love require? What does love require? Does it require you to forgive when it isn't fair? Does it require you to care for those who are hurting? Does it require you to open a seat at your table or a door or the door to your home? Does it require you to bring kindness, hope, dignity, and liberty to all people? I believe that the answer to all of those questions is yes, because when we ask these types of questions, it's no longer about us, but it's all about who we are pointing to. You know, Menno Simmons was a a Dutch priest. It's actually where the, the Mennonite Uh, denomination came from. My grandfather was Mennonite. My father was Mennonite. Uh, I'm not Mennonite. But Menno Simons was a a Dutch priest and one of the leaders of the radical reformation group that took a stand against corrupt religion in the 16th century. And it was a stand that found many of his counterparts' death. And after he came out against those corrupt religious leaders, Menno was was fleeing for his life for the rest of his life. In 1539, he released a copy as he was on the run, Why I Do Not Cease Teaching and Writing. And what he wrote captures so well what it means to discover what love requires of us. Just listen to this. Let these words sink in. Here's what Menno wrote. True evangelical faith is of such a nature it cannot lie dormant but spreads itself out in all kinds of righteousness and fruits of love. It dies to flesh and blood. It destroys all lusts and forbidden desires. It seeks, serves, and fears God in its inmost soul. It clothes the naked. It feeds the hungry. It comforts the the sorrowful. It shelters the destitute. It aids and consoles the sad. It does good to those who do it harm. It serves those that harm it. It prays for those who persecute it. Man, just as I read this, love is so weird and different. It teaches, admonishes, and judges us with the word of the Lord. It seeks those who are lost. It binds up what is wounded. It heals the sick. It saves what is strong. It becomes all things to all people. And then the way he ends this is so crazy. The persecution, suffering, and anguish that come to it, that come to this faith, faith, for the sake of the Lord's truth, have become a glorious joy and comfort to it. Like, that is a different approach to life. And, and I don't know about you, but as I, as I read and listen to Menno's words, there's this conviction that happens in me because I recognize the ways in which my love has not looked that weird, has not looked that different. But this is what it looks like to be a witness, to be a light in the darkness that's what we testify to i mean even jesus said in matthew 5:16 in the same way let your light shine before others that they may see your good good theology no that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven this is what we testify to even if it's dangerous even if it costs us socially fiscally emotionally and physically. I mean, think about this. Where does light shine? Does light shine in the, in, in the darkness or in the light? It, it shines in both places, actually. But, but it's way more noticeable in the dark, right? Like light stands out in the darkness. Are we standing out regardless of the cost? Even this Christmas, do we celebrate in a way that is noticeably different, is it making a, dif- a difference? Are we allowing the Holy Spirit to lead us and change us? Or are we allowing fear and complacency to stifle any of the John the Baptist-ness in us? I want to wrap up today by adding one more layer to this. Look at verses 7 to 8 with me again. Here's, here's what John wrote. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. Now what's fascinating is when John writes witness here, it is the Greek word martyreo. And I, I mentioned this earlier, but here's what martyreo, it's where we get the word martyr, martyr. So, so what's, what's fascinating about this is that we could think of this passage like this, that John came as a martyr to the light. He didn't become a martyr later on in his life when he lost his life. He came as a martyr. He already was a martyr. Now, when we hear the word martyr, we typically think of someone who lost their life because of their faith. They, they died because of their belief in Jesus, and it cost them their life, which ultimately happened to John the Baptist. He was beheaded. That's how his life ended. And it's actually happening to people still today. People are losing their lives because of their witness. Martyrdom is real, and it's a consistent part of the Christian story since the very beginning of our faith. But another way we could think through this is that those who died for their faith did not become a martyr because they died, but they died because they were a martyr. That being a martyr cost them their lives. See, if this gospel message changes us, is, is if the thing we celebrate this Christmas has any impact or bearing or, or, or direction over our life, then we don't have a choice. We become martyrs. If you are a witness to the light, then you and I are already martyrs. Which honestly, I hope that causes a little bit of discomfort. That instead of just thinking about folks we read about in the Middle East or, or, or in Asia that, that, that are losing their lives, and we can kind of distance ourselves from martyrdom, and we can say that that's terrible, and it's, we're praying for them, but we can kind of go, that's them, but not me, because we have religious freedoms in this country. That instead of that, that, that beyond that, that not just that, that we would allow the thought of us already being martyrs to develop courage and boldness and radical untamed faith in each of us as well. Because that, because maybe that encapsulates on a whole other level what it means and what it costs to be a witness for Jesus. And and we are fortunate to have the religious freedoms that we have in this country. Our lives are not at stake. Social, Social capital maybe, but not our lives. And sometimes I wonder if our religious freedoms have made us complacent. That we'll hear a message like this or we'll read about John the Baptist and go, yeah, I'm doing pretty good at that. But would we say that our witness is costing us anything? Are we even putting ourselves in a position where it potentially could? Let's make it even more applicable and break it down to where we're at today. Would people be surprised to find out that you follow Jesus, and not just that you follow Jesus, not just that you are a Christian, but that the foundational principle of your faith is to love God with everything that you are and to love everyone you come in contact with as much as you love you. Does it make a difference? I'm sure we can all think of some folks in our lives that we've seen this from, and I can... My, my, the first person that pops in my mind is my grandfather. He came out, he came out for, uh, for Thanksgiving, and he came to our Livermore campus, and, and it was the first time he's ever seen me preach, and it was so cool to have him here. But uh, he was walking around our church that morning thanking all of our volunteers for the hard work that they do. And I said, Grandpa, you're doing my job for me. And he said, well, someone's got to do it, because it doesn't look like you're doing a great job. And I was like, wow. <laughs> There's so many encouraging people in my family. <laughs> And uh, no, he he even like helped set up our, our our courtyard here in Livermore for Christmas, and and this is the same grandfather who he's in his eighties, but in his eighties this happened while he was with us. People call him. He's got a flip phone still, so he flips open his phone and he answers it, and he says, "Hello, this is Jim." And the first thing he hears on the other end is, "Hey, I hear you help people," and it's so true of my grandfather, and I and I can remember this about him from the very beginning, that he helps people. From shoveling snow out of their driveway, to paying for medication, to, to giving people groceries, or, or food, or a roof over their head, and, and the list just goes on and on. Since, since I can remember, my grandfather is a John the Baptist-type witness. He is the John the, the Baptist-type witness that I have seen throughout the course of my life. And I even remember back in the late 80s, when I was over at my grandparents' house, about the same time I got my Red Rider BB gun, that people would walk into their home while I was there. And I didn't know these, these folks, but they would walk in, they would say hello, I'd tell them how awesome the gun is, and then they would walk, and, then they would walk and, and talk to my grandfather. And it was a short conversation. My grandpa just handed them a piece of paper, and then they'd be on their way. Well, years later, I found out that every single one of those people that had walked into my grandparents' home either had HIV or AIDS, and the paper that my grandfather was giving them was a check so that they could pay for their medific- uh, their medication, which they couldn't afford otherwise. Now remember, this is the late 80s, when the predominant thought was that if someone with HIV or AIDS looked at you for too long, breathed on you, sneezed on you, or touched you, that you would also get this terrible disease or terrible virus. It got, it got so crazy that my parents had friends who were extremely concerned that they were allowing my sister and I to be at my grandparents' house when those people showed up. My, my grandma and grandpa even got yelled at and rebuked by their neighbors and friends for exposing their grandkids to that sickness. You know, the only thing I think I was exposed to and the only thing I think my sister was exposed to being at my grandparents' house was what it means to be a real witness. That's what we saw. A living testimony pointing to the light that is Jesus Christ. They lived a bold and untamed faith in the face of social cost. It was different. It stood out, but they never wavered. And that's what we saw. You know, our study this week has reminded me and challenged me, which, by the way, anytime any of us pastors get up here, whatever we're teaching through is, is it's something we're wrestling with or, or challenging or Jesus is inviting us to take a next step in. But this is, has reminded me this week of what it means to be a witness, to march a to the light like my grandfather does, like John the Baptist did. My hope and my prayer for me and for us is that we wouldn't stifle what is inside of us or be content with complacency or fear in the face of social cost. But that we would understand at a deeper level that what we do and how we live and how we love shows who we are pointing to. At the end of his book, The Barbarian Way, Pastor Irwin McManus describes this so well. And I'll conclude with this thought. He writes, Jesus leads us into the heart of the dark kingdom, into the soul of what is most evil. He takes us where humankind has chosen to live. He calls us to where the darkness has made those who wander there desperate for light. But he leads us as warriors of light to risk our lives for the deliverance of others. Again, our weapons are love, hope, and faith, and they are our only defense. Yet we, above all, know that they and only they liberate us and fulfill the deepest longings of our soul. This is different. And like John the Baptist, my prayer is that we, especially this month, would be different enough to make a difference. Whatever that looks like in your current context, whether that's at work, at home, in your neighborhood, at your kid's school, at your school the kind of different that would change the world as we point to Jesus, as we witness to the light that through us, that through our story, through our lives, through our love, that all might come to believe. This is our mission. Let's pray. Father God, I love you. It's so so crazy. Even as I read what Pastor, Pastor McManus said, the fact that you choose us to be your warriors for light, But even that word warrior, it just takes on a whole different meaning when we think about love and what it requires of us. God, I ask that you place us in positions this week that loving you may cost us social standing or may cost us some weird looks or some jeers from hecklers, God, but that our love would prevail over social cost because we are following your lead, that we witness to your light. God, be light in our darkness. Be light in the darkness that exists in the East Bay. God, be light in and through us as we follow and we witness and we testify and we martyreo to you. God, we love you. We adore you. Go with us this week. Challenge us. Invite us. Encourage us into something greater. Pray this in your son's precious and holy and powerful and beautiful name. Amen.